If you're guests, we're glad you're here. We're wrapping up this series. My name's Chris, and I have the joy of serving on staff here at Chapel. And when, if you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. And we are wrapping up this eight weeks that you and I have spent reading through the entire New Testament. Now, because we are honest and we are at church, right? Just making note of where we are. How many of you actually were able to read through the whole New Testament? Were you able to complete it? Very good. Look at that. There's quite a, quite a few of you that were able to do that. And how many of you um, had all the intentions in the world to read through the New Testament, but just quite didn't get through? And Okay, good. Yeah, confession's good for you. I'm glad you were able to raise your hand with confidence. Good. So we're in this uh, series that we're wrapping up. And for those of you who didn't know it, we are... Uh, reading through the entire New Testament together, and we've wrapped that up. How many loved Revelation? You're on top of that? Yeah, it was clear as day. I mean, uh, perfectly clear in how to apply that to my life. So um, I'm going to avoid that today. We won't uh, talk about Revelation, although there's lots of good stuff in it. I just thought 1st, 2nd, 3rd John would be a little more relevant for us today. And so one of the things that we've said throughout this series, looking at um, the text and who it was written to and, and how it is to um, transform us into the life that God desires us to have, is we've been saying this throughout, that I know a mess when I see a mess because... I am a mess, right? So when I am in a relationship with somebody who's very difficult to get along with and I, I look at their life and, and it has an effect on me, I, I can see that very clearly because, because I, I am one. I'm a mess too. I'm somebody's mess. I annoy somebody, I'm sure. Uh, we won't take a poll on that. But I'm, I guarantee that I, I annoy somebody. I, I at times can be a trial to somebody just like other people can be to me. I know what a mess looks like um, when I see it in other people because really, truly, I am one. And that's the humility that comes with following God and understanding who we are and our need for um, his intervention in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that um, you don't really, uh, you're not really afraid of walking around in the dark until you have children. Um, because I used to be able to get up and move through the house with no problem, kind of knowing where the walls were and that sort of thing. I could navigate pretty well uh, in dim light. But once children came along, that's a whole other story. It's just unsafe. There are landmines everywhere that they leave around. And I remember one day, um, we had told the kids, look, you need to get your stuff cleaned up out of the living room. We're doing a living room cleanup. Get all your toys put away and all that stuff. And Micah had Legos all over the floor. He likes to crawl around and put Legos all over the floor and blocks and that sort of thing. And really, Micah's kind of the, next to me, the messiest one in the house. And we, we said to him, you need to pick up all your toys and get them put away. And, and they said, fine. And, and then off to bed, we went. And I had to get up in the middle of the night and I come walking through the floor. And what do you think I find over and over again? Legos. Yeah. And I'm screaming, like literally I'm stepping on these things and they're not pleasant. They have sharp little corners and stuff. And I'm, ah, ooh, like that as I walk through the living room. And I got so angry over that. Went back to bed. The next day I woke up and I, st I just kind of said to my guy, I said, look, we told you to pick up your toys. You did not pick up your toys. And I go upstairs and it's interesting because all of his toys are put away. Except for my weights that I used to work out. So I actually had stepped on my weights that I hadn't put away, and I was angry at him. And why do I tell this story? I tell this story because when we walk around in the dark, we don't know what's really going on around us. Until, until we see by the, by the daylight, until we flip a light on, which I hadn't done that evening, or, 
or by the daylight, we see actually what's going on around us. And John talks about this in 1 John. Last week we looked at his gospel and what it meant for the church as far as be, being one and being unified. But this week we're going to look at 1 John where he writes to the church and he's, he's interested in something else. In fact, both in his gospel and in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's really interested in talking about this idea of light, light and darkness. And the reason that he uses the words uh, light and darkness over and over and over again in his writing is because he's really referring to truth and falsehood. And so when he talks about light, he's talking about true, what's true. And when he's talking about darkness, he's talking about what's not true. And so that evening as I went through the living room um, in the middle of the night and I hit some things, I thought some things were true, like Micah didn't put his stuff away, that weren't really true. And it wasn't until there was daylight that I could actually see that something was actually different than what I thought it was. And so in the light, I can see what is true, and in the darkness... I can't see what's true. I can only think what's true. So John uses that analogy to help us with that, and he's going to do so again in 1 John. We're going to take a look at chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, and he writes this. This is the message he's saying on behalf of those who have the apostles, the disciples, the people who follow Jesus, as he's bringing this message to uh, faraway lands and to churches and into people's lives that have never heard this message before. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you. So all we are doing, John says, is we have heard a message from Jesus. He's taught us. And now we're just going to pass that along to you. And here's what we're going to pass along. God is light. And so that's like the first thing he wants to tell people is God is light, meaning that God is truth. Because when we hear the word light, we ought to think what's true, what's real, not what's hidden in darkness. So he says God is light. And in him there is no darkness or there is no untruth at all. There's no deception. So God is light. He is true. And in him there's no deception whatsoever. There's no darkness. Continuing the next verse, he continues to write, we if we claim to have fellowship with him, meaning that we have a relationship with God, if we claim that we have a relationship with God, and yet we walk, meaning we live our lives, in the darkness, we lie. Now, John's kind of going easy on us, isn't he? <laughs> Not really. He says, look, if you claim to have a relationship with God, and then you live your life as if it is in the dark, seeking things that are not true, then, then we actually are liars. And we do not live out the truth. And so when I woke up that morning, and I went to Micah, and I said, listen, why didn't you pick up all your toys? I told you to pick up all your toys. I was not living... In truth, was I? I was living in deception. I was deceived. In fact, I had caused my own problem, and yet I'm blaming my five-year-old son, which is way easier to do, by the way, than taking responsibility for yourself. And so what I was doing is I was living off of a lie. And what John is saying here is that we don't live in the truth if we claim to have a relationship with God, and yet we walk in things that are untrue. We live our lives in ways that are untrue. Okay, next verse. Is that clear? Then he says, but if we walk in the light, meaning that we choose to live our, our, our lives not being deceived, but actually living it according to truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, meaning that we can't have relationship with each other if we are living in ways that are, are deceiving. 
not only to ourselves or to each other, but if we live in darkness, we can't even have a relationship with each other. Just like, again, I go to Micah and I wag my finger at him and I say, you didn't pick up your toys. I am living in the darkness and now I can't have a relationship with my son, can I? Because I'm kind of angry at him and he knows I'm wrong. Do you know how humbling, it is, how humbling it is to be a 40-year-old person and know that your five-year-old son knows more than you in that moment? That he's actually right and I'm wrong in that moment? So, we have fellowship with one another because we live in the light and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. So when we come to God through the person of Jesus, we find that we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice, as Holly talked about a little earlier, being the Lamb of God. Now, that's a lot of light, that's a lot of darkness, that's a lot of words kind of put together and analogies thrown together. But we're going to dive into something here, we're going to dig really, really deep, because John in the next verse, and we're not going there yet, is going to talk about something that plagues every single one of us. And it's this thing that's very insidious, and it's something that actually will keep us from not only growing together in our relationships, it'll cause us to quit growing together in our relationship with God, and it'll cause us to quit growing in our own spiritual lives. And so John's going to talk about that in a minute, but before we do that, I want to show you some pretty astounding statistics, okay? So I picked these up in a book that I'm going to show you here in a little bit, but here's the first statistic. 94% of college professors believe that they are above average. Now just stop for a moment. <laughs> Think about that statistic. Can 94%, is it possible that 94% of college professors could actually be better than average? Is that even statistically possible? It doesn't work that way, right? Only those that are above the halfway mark can be better than average. 94% can't be better than average. And the funny part about it is, is like, what do the other 6% believe about themselves? <laughs> I, I guess I'm just kind of average. Or maybe they'd say that they're below average. I don't know. But here's another one that's kind of outsta uh, outstanding. 70% um, of high school seniors think they are above average leaders. Isn't that an interesting statement? 7 out of 10 high school seniors say, I am better than the average student at leading. Like... It doesn't make sense to me that 7 out of 10, right? Because you could only have half above that 50% mark, but 70% believe it. Here's another one that I think is kind of funny. 60% of students believe they are in the top 10% of students. <laughs> think about that for a second. 60% of students, 6 out of 10 students believe that they're in the top one-tenth in their academic performance. What is going on here that causes people to answer these questions when asked? Do you think you're an above average college professor? Do you think you're an above average leader? Do you think that you're an above average student? What is going on when people answer the question in such arrogant terms? There's a denial of reality, right? There's a denial of reality that not everybody can be in the top 10%. And there's something going on where we actually think that we are better than what we are. That's what these statistics sort of tread out for us. We actually think that we are better than what we are when we are asked questions about a self-assessment about where we are. So if I were to ask a question, we would go around and I'd say, how generous do you think you are in your financial giving? You might say, I'm in the top 10%. And in reality, you might be at the bottom. And the, the reason that that happens is because we think of ourselves as doing better. We want to think of ourselves as doing better than reality says that we're doing. 
And we really want to be in denial about really what's going on. And what this is called is self-deception. Self-deception. And John talks about this as we jump into it. Self-deception helps us to understand that beliefs don't really need to be true to be satisfying. For 94% of those college professors who think that they are above average, they're satisfied with that belief, aren't they? They get up and they go to work in the morning and maybe even inspires them a little bit to think that they are better than the average professor. It, it, it might help students to study harder to think that 60, you know, the 60% of students think that they're in the top 10%. Maybe that motivates them in some way. But the, but the fact doesn't have to be reality for the, truth, for, for the untruth to be satisfying to us. So that's how self-deception works, is we, we have a belief, we hold on to a belief, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a true belief for it to bring to us some sense of satisfaction or self-esteem or um, motivation to get up in the morning and go do what we do. We need really only to believe them. That's all that really needs to happen. A belief doesn't have to be true to be satisfying, it's just that we have to believe that it's true for it to be satisfying. Do you see that? So we can hold on to something that is not true and be satisfied by it only because we believe it. So let me go back to my analogy. I wake up in the middle of the night, I step on something, I think it's Micah, I go downstairs. What do I believe? I believe that my son did not put his toys away. And that's very satisfying to me because then I don't have to believe that I didn't put my stuff away. And so I hold on to that belief. But the problem is I wake up in the morning and I go out in the living room and there's truth sitting in front of me. That really, I caused my own injury. Really, I wasn't as responsible as I thought I was and I certainly wasn't as responsible as I was attempting to teach my children to be. Self-deception is a crazy thing. And so I just want to stop here and I want to jump off then back into the, uh, the next screen, if we can bring that up, is uh, jumping back into the verse again. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So if we go about our lives and we walk in darkness, as he said earlier, we actually are self-deceived if we don't believe the things that we are living or doing are right. When in reality, weighed up against the entirety of the New Testament as we've read it throughout these weeks, maybe it's not right. So if we claim that we are without sin, meaning we have rationalized our way to a place where we're okay with our behaviors and attitudes, we actually deceive ourselves, John says. That, what that means then is that we hold on to something that is untrue because it brings satisfaction to us. And it doesn't have to be true to bring the satisfaction. We just have to believe it's true. And so here's what John's saying. We are deceiving ourselves when we believe something is true that is untrue. And it's detrimental to us. And he says, the truth is not in us. The truth actually is not in us when we hold on to things that are untrue only because they bring us the satisfaction as if we believe they are true. That's the insidiousness of self-deception. Let me, let me show you how this works in our lives as followers of Jesus, okay? And see if we can identify with this a little bit. Let me show you how it works, kind of the steps. And we're going to focus on one thing here. Here's how self-deception works. The New Testament, as we've read it over the eight weeks, is clear about radical change. It's clear that we are to be radically transformed into people who look like Jesus. Meaning we are radically in love with people of the world. Meaning that we radically love our neighbors as, our, as ourselves. Meaning that we radically dig deep and we sacrificially give of the resources and finances that we have. That we radically serve one another in the way in which we live our lives. That we radically love our enemies. 
that we radically forgive. Okay, so the New Testament is extremely clear in the way in which the transformation is to take place in our lives that is absolutely radical, meaning I was walking this way and now I am walking that way, or I was living this way or had this attitude or that attitude, and now I am living in the clear opposite of that. So the New Testament is very clear about that. None of us argue about that. It has high demands on us for a standard of living that is, is in alignment with what Jesus taught. But here's what happens. The second thing that happens is we observe that not much is really changing in our lives. So the second thing is, we, we read the New Testament, we see something, we get convicted by it maybe, and then we sort of kind of look and we're a little self-reflective in our own lives or we get into a small group or we begin to discuss kind of what the effects of this mean, what is it that we're, to, how we, we are to live this out, and we kind of observe that really not much is really changing in our lives. Like I'm really, really trying to be transformed in my anger and yet I still kind of lose it every now and then. Right? I'm really trying to be generous, but then that, uh, that thing comes up and uh, I've got all these bills that have piled up and maybe just if I can get past them, then I'll be radically generous like the New Testament asks. And so what happens is we, we observe that not much is changing and so we've got a problem. We see truth and it's a pretty radical truth and it has a high demand on us. And then we observe our lives and we realize that <laughs> they're really not in alignment with that radical truth at all. There's a big separation. And so we got to figure out what we're going to do with that. So here's what we do with it. We intend to engage that later. That's, that's kind of how we approach it. Ah, I will deal with that next week. <laughs> and so what happens is we shove it off. Because the, the disparity between what is true and where we are in our personal lives are so far apart. The only thing we can do to survive in that situation is to actually radically change, which would be kind of overwhelming, or we can intend to engage it later. We can say, you know what, maybe next week I'm going to give attention to that. And actually, we're better off if we do it much later. <laughs> right? The further off we can put it, the less intimidating it becomes. And then finally we get to this fourth step where we become content just to be forgiven. And so what happens in our Christian life is instead of con being confronted by the radicalness of a text, we end up going kind of through this gamut and by the end of it we just say, you know what, I'm forgiven and that's a really good thing. Thank you Jesus for forgiving me. And then nothing changes. And what happens, John says, is now we are self-deceived because we are holding on to something that's not true because it brings satisfaction. It helps us in some way cope. And then we rest on a theology that says that we are forgiven. But Jesus didn't just call people to be forgiven. He called them to be radically transformed. So how do we engage in this? How do we live in this? I want to show you a quote out of a book called I Told You So, and you can pick it up. It's really good. It's about self-deception by Greg Elsoff. And he says this in the book, often our strongest moral beliefs diminish or even disappear if we procrastinate acting on them. And so this is how self-deception works, is we actually will read something and then we'll just delay acting on it. We'll put it later, right? And then we become content with just being forgiven. And so what happens is even the strongest things that we believe, if interviewed, if sat down and interviewed by, say, 60 Minutes and, and, and the inter interviewer said, look, what do you believe about this situation or that situation? We would say, absolutely, we agree. And this is what you know, the New Testament has taught us and, and Jesus has taught us in the way we're to live our lives. And we would agree with it passionately but to actually live it out would be something else and so what happens is we when we put it off when we procrastinate on it 
the conviction of it begins to diminish, Greg says. It begins to go away. Let me just kind of give you an example of this. There was a, there was a guy one time I knew, and he went to um, a conference, and it, when he was at that conference, he heard this amazing speaker who had been working with uh, refugees over in the Middle East. And this, this guy gets up, and he's sharing from the platform the trials and the situations. I mean, whole families picked up and left everything that they had to flee for safety, not even knowing if they would make it across any border or if any country would take them in. Imagine whole communities uprooted in this way. And I, I just, you know, it, I, I can't even imagine what that would look like. But, but as this presenter talked and this other person listened, this friend of mine, the conviction started to, to well up in what they could do. And so the person was up there on platform sharing um, about this and then said, we need you to help financially and here's how you can help. And so my friend's listening to this, totally convicted by what's being said, but realizes that uh, he doesn't have his checkbook and he doesn't have any cash in his pocket. And so he says, out of this huge moral conviction that he ought to do something, that he's going to get back to his hotel room, and when he gets the checkbook, he's going to write the check. But the problem is, my friend on the way back to the hotel room runs into another friend of his and, and that he hadn't seen for a long time, and they have a little bit of a reunion, and so they go to lunch. He gets sidetracked. And so he has lunch, and um, he pulls out his credit card, and he pays for lunch, and then afterward, he says, I've got to get back to the hotel room. That's, there's that thing. And he gets back to the hotel room. But the problem is, is that when he gets back to the hotel room, there's this very interesting show on TV. And so he forgets to pull out his checkbook. And he thinks, you know what? I didn't even balance the checkbook. In fact, I didn't even pay the bills from last week. And I need to do that. So when I get home, when I get back home, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to pay the bills. And I'll take out the checkbook. And then I'll make sure I write a check to this organization. And I send it in. Well, the problem is, is a week goes by. He gets home. It's pretty tired from all this traveling and he sits down this friend of mine to write a check for all the bills and he realizes after the bills are all paid that he really doesn't have enough to give the amount that he wants to give this guy like 20 bucks left and so he thinks to himself well I'll just wait till the next payday and when the next payday comes I'll get paid and then I'll pay the bills and then I'll send a check and so two weeks later payday comes he sits down writes the checks to pay the bills and at this time he totally forgets about the whole thing and then it's a year later and he's preparing a sermon and now he's standing in front of you and he has completely forgotten about the refugees. How did that happen? And yet I still haven't written a check, by the way. <laughs> because our strongest moral beliefs, they diminish and they disappear if we procrastinate acting on them. And so here I am a year later, convicted by this very thing, and I've done nothing about it. Because time's gone by. I've procrastinated. It doesn't have the same moral kind of um, conviction that it had in the beginning. Like, I still think about that talk and I still think about the conviction, but I'm really not motivated anymore because I let procrastination happen. So that's what happens in our lives. That's why we go and we hear inspirational speakers. We have moments of inspirational worship and we think, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. And then we don't do it. Because we procrastinate and really what's going on is self-deception. We're holding on to a belief that we think is true and it brings us so much satisfaction, we're not willing to let go of it, even when it isn't true. So, continuing on. The problem is here is that when there's more procrastination, then there's less clarity. Does that make sense? When we procrastinate more on something, a conviction or a situation that has motivated us, 
there's less clarity than later on. Now, I could tell you right now, I was inspired by that talk about refugees, but I can't give you the statistics that he gave that were really convicting. I'm, I'm less clear now, and so I procrastinate more. And here's the problem with self-deception. Self-deception actually stunts discipleship. It keeps us from growing in the ways that God would have us grow. It, it keeps us from moving forward in our spiritual lives in the areas in which... God would have us move forward or grow or stretch. And so self-deception actually will stunt our discipleship and we will remain immature. And this is why John's talking about don't be self-deceived. Don't deceive yourselves. Okay, continuing on. This next verse, verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins then, right, what does confession entail but a recognition that I'm holding on to a false belief and believing it to be true? What is conviction but that? I mean, confession but that. That's exactly what confession is. Confession says, I've been holding on to this false belief, and now I am going to gravitate to a new belief. I'm going to release this false belief. I'm going to recognize it for what it is, and I'm going to look to embrace a new truth, something that is true. So if we confess our sins, John says, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's the beauty of this statement, isn't it? That if we do the actual difficult thing of confessing that we have been holding on to a belief, and the problem is, is we don't really want to confess we've been holding on to a false belief because it's actually a very humbling thing. It's a pretty humbling thing to do that, to say, ah, I was wrong. But look at what John says. He says, look, God is faithful and just and will forgive you. Like the future is already being said to you and to me. He will forgive us our sins. And then, not just leave us there. Not just leave us forgiven. Remember the fourth thing in the self-deception thing about how we go? We end up being settled for being just forgiven. John takes it a step further. He says, you're not just forgiven. You're purified from all unrighteousness, meaning that you are given the opportunity to walk in a new way. You are purified from the untruth, and now you are given the opportunity to embrace something that is true and to hold onto it. And so here's a point that I want you to see, and that is that genuine confession actually leads to genuine change. Genuine confession leads to genuine change. When we actually come forward and we say, you know what, I've been holding on to a false truth and I'm going to let it go and I'm going to embrace something new. So when we read in the New Testament something that radically confronts us, instead of procrastinating on it, to actually say, I'm a total failure in that. I'm an absolute failure in that area. And I'm not only going to share that in confessing it to my Heavenly Father, but I'm going to share that in confessing it to the rest of you, in my small group, in my family, that this is where I'm actually missing it. And then that genuine confession can actually lead to genuine change. But here's the problem. Here's why we don't confess very easily, okay? Here's why when I wake up in the morning and I have to face the fact, the unpleasant fact, by the way, that it is me that caused my own problem in that living room with that weight set. Here's why. We fear the cost of confession more than we fear the cost of concealment. We think that the cost of coming forward and saying, you know what, I've been holding on to a false belief and all the rest of you are going to think I'm a complete spiritual loser <laughs> if I confess that. The reason that we fear confessing it is because that cost, it does cost us something. It costs us our pride, doesn't it? It costs us like our status within other people's eyes. Um, that cost is greater, actually, than the cost of, of concealing it, of hiding it. And so what we do is we hide it. And we live, as John says, then in the darkness. And what we're doing is we are self 
deceived. We're living in the darkness, but we think we're living in the light, and we have really just deceived ourselves and not even the one who sees through it all. Because God, he says, is light. That's just who he is. It's not that God walks in the light. See, God doesn't walk in the light like you and I walk in the light. God actually is the light. And then he leaves us with this final verse. He says in verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, he kind of reminds us this again, if we claim that we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And so John invites us to come to a place where we're no longer self-deceived. Now, procrastination is one way in which we are self-deceived. There actually are four or five others that Greg gets to, into in his book, so I'd encourage you to pick up that book, I Told Me So. It's a great book on self-deception. Uh, procrastination is one way in which we do it, but there are other ways as well that I don't really have time to get into in this talk. But if you, you want to do that, I encourage you to do that because it's very fascinating. So, how do we get to a place of, of not procrastinating anymore? We've got to begin to do it now. Now. So when we feel conviction, when we are confronted by something that's huge, we do it now. We confess it. We live humbly. And then we move forward. And that's how God does it.